Welcome to episode 216 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Wednesday 12th of June 2019. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi, I'm Carlton Reed, and I'm speaking to you from Stockholm in Sweden. I'm back at my hotel now, but for the past three days, I've been at the UITP Global Public Transport Summit, thanks to a come and do your podcast from here invite from the UITP's press manager, Scott Shepherd. He very bravely let me get here from Newcastle by train, a hashtag stay on the ground journey that took me 28 hours straight, involving seven connections, two of them very tight ones. I did an article for Forbes.com on this flight shaming journey, but I could have been terribly delayed and I'd have reported that, which wouldn't have been a great advert for using trains instead of flights. However, I did get here on time, a day or so before the show started. UITP stands for Union International de Transport Public and was founded as an organisation for trams way back in 1885. The UITP's Global Public Transport Summit is held every two years in a city with stellar transit, and Stockholm certainly fits the bill. I've been dotting around on commuter trains, metros and even ferries, all operated by SL, Stockholm's integrated transport company. There were also a smattering of bike companies here at the Expo, especially bike share operators, because, as you'll hear, the riding of city bikes is very much considered here as a form of public transport. That's a subject I discuss with Rachel Zack of Remix, an American software-based transport strategy firm, and Niccolo Panozzo of the European Cyclist Federation from Brussels. On the bike share front, I talked with Tanya Carlsell of PBSC, the Canadian bike share firm, one of the sector's oldest and biggest operators. And I also talked with Sebastian Schliebusch of Germany's Next Bike, another long-lived bike share firm, and one that had dockless bikes long before those partly here-today-gone-tomorrow Chinese upstarts such as Mobike and Ofo. Also on the show today will be Mohamed Metzgani, UITP's Secretary General. We talked last-mile transportation, cycleways and congestion charging. He said UITP and its 700 members are very much in favour of congestion charging. However, opposing that point of view, I talked with Raphael Kester of Transport for Greater Manchester, who spoke about the political problems around even daring to suggest motorists ought to pay towards their road use. This thorny topic also made it as a piece I wrote for Forbes.com, quoting both Mohammed and Raphael. 
The piece kicked off, however, with a conversation I had with London's Transport Commissioner, Mike Brown. I didn't get that one on tape because we were just chatting on the Metro from the show halls to Stockholm Central. Getting the opportunity to bump into folks like this is what these shows are all about. Now, I'll play the conversations in a moment, but first here's a short promotion I did back in the UK with Laura Laker. We're going to be producing nearly live podcasts from Velo City in Dublin at the end of June. Hi there, I'm Colton Reid and I'm talking to you from Newcastle while I'm riding my bike, testing out a new, on-the-move, microphone. Hi there, I'm Laura Laker and I'm here in London recording as I'm cycling along beside Hyde Park in London. Later this month, we'll be together in Dublin for Velo City and we'll be doing nearly live virtual Velo City daily podcasts from the conference interviewing loads of interesting people, some of whom actually backed the project on Kickstarter. Don't worry if you miss the crowdfunder, you can still get pre-order podcasts by going to www.virtualvelo-city.com. That's where the daily podcast will be hosted. Access to those cost £16 and you can pay by PayPal or credit card on virtualvelo dash city.com backers will also get tons of behind the scenes stuff from us both see you in dublin laura and that's somebody beeping me from behind thank you very much okay i'm now back in stockholm and i'll add that this is the first of two episodes from the uitp global public transport summit in a day or two i'll produce a second show which is conversations with behavioural scientist and million-selling author Steve Martin and Giovanni Giacella, an Italian academic at the University of California at Davis. But that's for later. Let's get into today's show. I am Rachel Zack, and I'm a policy strategist for Remix. Uh, Remix is a uh, software company that builds uh, tools to make cities more livable. Our founders were all from Code for America where they met um, and found a shared love for transportation. They built a tool for transportation planning that um, they tweeted about. It was picked up by a big transportation planner who retweeted it and then overnight they were asked to create a company. Um, and so they did and now at least 350 uh, agencies across the US and the globe are users of Remix. Uh, in the last few years or so, more and more of the trips on the public right-of-way uh, are, are on these new mobility modes that may or may not be operated by public agencies, um, but certainly create new demands on infrastructure. And so we move from simply doing uh, transit routing software to uh, offering new capabilities around street design and uh, mobility management which um, are now offered in the platform for ultimately one view over all the different types of uh, new transportation services offered in a city. Um, as you can imagine, there are new needs for understanding how curbs are used and how, how infrastructure is used and allocated and prioritized and having everything in one place is something that we heard from customers is really important. And so that's how those capabilities kind of came to be and how Remix as one platform has grown into having all these um, new sort of features and capabilities. 
Um, my role at Remix is a policy strategist, and so what that means is paying attention to uh, our customers, which are cities, uh, understanding what their needs really are and sort of the directions they're headed in terms of um, which recommendations from, which strategy recommendations uh, in the world of transportation are really sticking and that which ones are they running with and how can we enable to do that do that really well. Uh, what we're seeing is a lot of uh, aspirational policies involve some more nuance uh, and technological assistance. Uh, so for instance, if you are a city who has uh, scooters coming, your gut impulse might be to limit the supply of those so that you don't see an over uh, abundance of scooters when in fact what you really wish to do is just understand that there's a balance between supply and demand. So how are you able to see what the utilization rates are? How are you able to visualize that across providers? Um, you know, that's more nuanced policy and that's something that uh, Remix strives to enable for them. And are you US only? Because you mentioned like 350 cities there, but that's yeah. US or are we talking global? We're talking global and um, you, so Certain capabilities, street design and uh, mobility management are, are certainly available in the US, uh, but transit planning is available across the globe. Because transit's kind of better here than it is in the US. I mean, <laughs> some cities are pretty mine. good. Some <laughs> cities are pretty good, but. Yes, uh, there certainly are, are a lot of actual differences between transit here and in the US um, in terms of who's providing the services and who the operators are. Um, but yeah, so we we have both public agencies in the US and in uh, Europe using the software. So Rachel, I met you this morning because you were uh, one of the people giving uh, your knowledge and your expertise at a panel discussion on dockless, docked, um, station, stationless, whatever you want to describe it, uh, bikes, city share bikes. And that uh, panel was uh, moderated or hosted uh, by Niccolo from, uh, well, Niccolo, tell us where you're from. I know where you're from, but tell, tell everybody else where you're from. Yeah, so I'm Niccolo Panozzo, Director of Communications at the European Cyclist Federation. Um, ECF is a not-for-profit organization based in Brussels, where we do uh, advocacy, basically. We represent users, so we represent cyclists um, to the, before the uh, EU institutions, uh, and we try to influence the way new legislation is shaped, uh, how many funds are put and invested in um, in cycling, in cycling projects, in cycling infrastructure, etc. Uh, we have a relatively big team in Brussels compared to other uh, similar NGOs. We are around 25 uh, with a strong policy team working on different topics um, concerning uh, cycling and around with a 360 degrees view on the benefits of cycling and the potential of cycling. Um, and then we have a lot of EU projects ongoing where we actually manage to involve cities and get, uh, get down from the legislative and more uh, theoretical detached level of EU policies down to actually implementation of um, uh, of what we uh, of what we promote, uh, and so we have a lot of uh, around. Right now, we have around ten active uh, EU projects um, where we work with cities, with other NGOs, with the research institutes um, to make a reality of these things that we 
preach. So we are here in Stockholm at the UITP Summit, Global Public Transport, not Transit, uh, Transport Summit, uh, and uh, they're based, their HQ is in Brussels, and it has been since 1885, I've now discovered. Mm -hmm. uh, so you are also in, in Brussels. So in your daily work, do you liaise with UITP? Is it one of the, the NGOs that you... Mm -hmm. So we, we definitely work uh, together on certain topics. Uh, we have a long-standing uh, cooperation uh, work and we have a, a, a standing MOU that... Uh, Memorandum of Understanding, yeah, just in case we... Understanding, yep. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> uh, to, to, to frame our collaboration, we are, uh, as ECF, we are members of their Combined Mobility Committee um, that is really inclusive of a lot of other um, modes of transport, urban modes of transport, apart from public transport. So there are car sharing, bike sharing systems, operators, other NGOs, and so on. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, we worked together on a couple of papers, position papers on bike sharing, specifically when there was this wave of Asian operators uh, disrupting, basically, the way mobility was conceived, shared mobility, bike mobility, was conceived in Europe. Um, and very recently, we just published another uh, a policy brief on mobility as a service. Um, so yeah, we, we work on a lot of topics together. Uh, basically, we provide the cyclists' uh, perspective, and uh, our approach is always very collaborative with um, all alternatives, all organizations that provide a viable alternative to private cars. So more than happy to work with them. <laughs> so I interviewed yesterday uh, the Secretary General of the UITP, uh, Mohammed uh, Mitzgani, <laughs> and un he doesn't know me from Adam, and he doesn't know that I'm a, you know, very much a cycle journalist, <laughs> even though I'm representing uh, Forbes when I'm, I'm interviewing him. But unbidden, he mentioned um, cycle lanes and cycling. It's very much, it seems to be ingrained that uh, cycling is absolutely complementary mm -hmm. to public transit, public transport, and that is a, is a given by that organization. But where we started talking, and this is where I'll bring Rachel in, um, is, uh, again, I didn't really raise this, I don't think. I don't think I was like a fishing expedition here at all. <laughs> but we started talking about congestion charging. And Rachel, in one of the answers that you gave, I think it was towards the end, where people were saying, "What can we do? What can we? How can we? You know, bring the future forward?" And then you then uh, raised a point about, well, congestion charging is one of the things. So, so this is something that you think cities have got to bring in to to is that to dis discourage cars to, and motoring, or is that just as a revenue thing? Great question. Um, yeah. So. Um, I think in the U.S. we're starting to see more and more cities study, study congestion charging um, for the sake of actually maybe addressing congestion. Uh, but a good congestion pro charging program takes the revenue and puts it back into alternatives. So at the end of the day, it should never be about revenue, um, re revenue generation. It's really about making sure that there are alternatives to taking the car. And my point in, the, uh, in my response during the session is that uh, I believe the question was are about competition between 
spikes and transport and and I think what we're seeing is a multitude of services looking at the same market of people who have options are probably have a higher propensity to take other options. And what we need to do is create a bigger market of people who are willing to take other options. And so pricing is just one of the suite of policies that can be instituted um, to create a bigger market of people who are, who are considering taking something else other than the investment that they've made in their private automobile. Um, and it is an effort that will take a lot of leadership on behalf of uh, city, city leaders. Um, and so it's something that they could be doing today to put in place, making sure they're researching it, making sure they're making the relationships that they're going to really need to pull something like that off. Um, and it needs to be done well. And like I said, it needs to create that revenue and place it in places where people will be able to have alternatives because um, that's really what the goal is. So Stockholm, did that London sure. yep. did that Singapore I believe did that with with the money it's ring fence and it's spent on right. on on transit and all sorts now the interesting thing from a US perspective has got to be and this is probably where people fall off their chairs is New York City yes. is is going to have a scheme we think in 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 2021 so that is that like an avalanche about to come that's going to be that's the that's the thing that just gets everybody, every US city goes, well, if, if, if Manhattan can do it, we should be doing it. Yeah, so New York has been focused on congestion pricing for a very long time. I think under Bloomberg, they were very close. The city was all, uh, all about it. Um, and I think it's also a story of how do you get states to prioritize cities policy um, and how do you get them to work together uh, to create city-centric policies or, or policies that impact what cities' goals might be, which are very different from sort of state initiatives. Congestion is one of those. Congestion is something that affects cities specifically and maybe not the state legislature. Um, and so when you're, when you're in New York and you have this little island that's, that people are accessing from other states, for instance, or even other counties, that takes a lot of collaboration in terms of doing some sort of congestion pricing scheme. Now, what we're seeing in New York is that there's this shortfall in the state-operated transit service, MTA. And so, um, so I think they have a lot of work to do on thinking about who will be able to see the impacts of this congestion pricing over what period of time and making sure that they're kind of seeing the benefits of you know what that revenue can do for the city, which I think is challenging, given given that it will go to a shortfall. Um, so I think they have some challenges that lie ahead, but they are certainly, you know, what everybody's looking at in the United States to be sort of this opener of of this policy that has been super challenging and talked about for at, at least a decade. I'm being generous. <laughs> yeah. But it's coming now, so it's that's coming. pretty exciting. It's that's so exciting. That's the floodgates. Yeah. That's 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 the start. That's the start. Although saying that, London, you know, you would think would lead the way for UK cities, and it didn't. So mm -hmm. so London is pretty much the only one. I mean, Durham, where I live up in, in Newcastle, has a, a one, but it's like it's tiny. It's a tiny, tiny city. When we can't mm -hmm. even think of it in the same breath. Um, now, Nicola, can I come back to you and go back to? Um, the previous points about um, uh, uh, public transport, public transit, mm -hmm. and, 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 and cycling, and the European Cycling Federation. A lot of the people listening to this, and I've certainly been surprised coming here, that cycling is seen as absolutely 
a friendly force, a, a force mm -hmm. for good here. But many people listening to this will think, well, I just got run over, nearly got run over by a bus. And, <laughs> you know, people want me to go in the bus lane and, and there's conflict there. So out on the streets, mm -hmm. genuinely out on the streets, there's conflicts between cyclists and, and buses. So at an official level, there isn't. Mm -hmm. So how can we square that circle that actually cyclists and, and, and bus drivers are often at each other's mm -hmm. throats, sometimes literally, whereas their, their leaders, their, mm -hmm. the, the advocacy people, are actually very friendly to, uh, to each other. Yeah. So first of all, just a historic uh, note it wasn't always like that and public transport was at first was quite afraid um, of bike sharing specifically that they would become uh, an alternative uh, to public transport rather than um, supplement or a, a complementary service um, so at first public transport was quite worried and concerned of the introduction of bike sharing systems subsidized by cities uh, and like a normal public transport, a traditional public transport service. Um, but likely with more data, experience and time, they realize that it's not taking, um, yeah, it's actually completing the service that they provide. And so it became an ally, uh, but it's, I wouldn't say recent thing, but it's not since the beginning. Um, then of course, yeah, I guess the, the conflicts that may arise in the city, in the street, between cyclists and public transport uh, operators are really due to how the infrastructure is designed and built and uh, how the interaction is foreseen by the urban planners. Um, there are several studies showing that bike lanes, uh, I mean, the, the possibility for cyclists to use bus lanes, for example, are good in certain conditions. So when, for example, the, um, uh, the, the frequency of buses is below a certain threshold, um, when it's not necessarily a long way, uh, a long street uh, without many stops, so the bus can go faster than a bike. Um, so there are already some studies talking about how to smoothen this relationship uh, and make it uh, a positive one. Um, and then city by city, street by street, this has to be designed, it has to be put into the, the, the urban planning and the and overall um, holistic approach to urban design, to street design, which has lacked for a very long time, it's still these silos that we, s we keep talking about really exist, especially in city administrations. They have different departments that cannot or do not talk to each other. Uh, and so, for example, the planning of cycle lanes should totally be integrated, fully integrated with the, the design and planning of public transport routes and stops and so on. While we are starting to do that now because we are more aware of exactly these uh, interconnections between the two, but it's not, it's not a given. It's not something that is uh, the norm. So we're, we're breaking down those silos just by being here because, okay. I mean, and bike share and scooter share, whatever, is helping to get uh, active transport modes 
in a, a summit, a conference, that's nothing to do with active transport noise, but these are customers. So somebody on a bike, somebody on a scooter, is not, is not in conflict with that, that bus, that tram, mm -hmm. that uh, urban rail. It's, it's, as the Dutch experience shows, it's absolutely a customer. You will get more customers if you cater to cyclists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, as we said, we, we realize that this is a profitable collaboration for everyone, for cyclists, for public transport uh, operators and users um, quite recently. So it's all, I think, still in evolution. And uh, yeah, we are tackling these silos. Yeah. On the subject of silos, I think um, the Remix perspective is really quite interesting. Uh, so previous, before I came to Remix, I was a consultant, so I worked with a lot of public agencies and dealt with the siloing and had to go across different uh, departments to kind of think about new mobility. And what I find fascinating about building a platform that brings all the modes into one picture is that you can enable that work stream to have access to the full picture, even though that work stream might not come into contact mm. with this work stream. And you both have access to layers that you might be developing and using as your backdrop. So now you have silos looking at the same picture instead of siloing even the data from one section and workflow to another, you're able to access that all through one platform. So while the workflow might say, stay separate, you're now able to envision the street and all of the operations. So we, you can see transit, you can see bike share, you can see um, you know, the roads that they operate on, and you can then bring along the public. Um, one of Remix's key features is storytelling. So you can bring the public in to say, look where all, the, you can bring your crash data in and say, look where all the crashes were on this corner. And now there's a high rate of scooter use because we have the trip paths in there. And then you can turn on a base layer that shows that that road actually doesn't have any bike infrastructure. So you could put in the bike infrastructure and then cost out what that's going to cost. And you can then have a conversation with your stakeholders. Now they understand why they, you know, why you might want to put infrastructure there. Now they understand what the cost might be, and maybe where they're willing to, um, you know, get rid of a uh, a former parking uh, space because they want to make room for bike racks. These are all things that you can now see in one uh, one platform that before perhaps was a very difficult and uh, cumbersome process of pulling all that information into one space and bringing people along with you. With the advent and acceptability of bike share, and I'll, I'll kind of bring scooters in there as well, but with th th that coming on stream and becoming acceptable, um, uh, that is bringing those, that cycling is now considered by um, by organizations here and by the companies I've been uh, talking to and in the presentations themselves as uh, public transport, which probably it wasn't considered public transport. It was another form of transport. It was personal transport. But now cycling is seen as public transport. Do you think that's only the bike share or do you think somebody who owns their own bike is now considered, well, that's, that's a form of Where's, where's, is there an absolute definition that no, public transport is only when it's bike share and you don't own that bike, you don't own that scooter? Mm -hmm. I, I do think that the concept of it being public transport comes from subsidizing the system, in which case uh, there is sort of a delineation between um, whether you own the bike and ride on the infrastructure or if the government is subsidizing the service to be available for mobility. 
Uh, that's my my understanding. You can uh, chime in here if it's different mm. for you. But I do think uh, all of this brings together a conversation about infrastructure and what is the role of government? Is it creating the infrastructure for uh, private mobility modes to build on top of and monetize? Um, how should that be captured? Is that through a permitting process? So we're just starting to see the streets sort of as we've seen software, you know, you, so you build the, the, the platform and then people can build apps on top of it. So now our roadways are sort of that infrastructure and people are building on top of it. And, and so we're in the early days of sort of seeing how that pans out. Um, but it's a, it's, it's, I think it's just new for everyone to, to figure out what that business model would look like and what is the right role of government. Um, and, and then again, like infrastructure, we were actually just talking about this, but infrastructure is really expensive to build. Um, and so how, and mobility is really expensive to deliver. Uh, so, so rethinking how, how we can work together in public-private partnership on delivering some of this uh, mobility need and providing access for people between their jobs and their homes um, in a land use environment that's incredibly challenging and getting more and more challenging every day. Uh, you know, I think we really need to look at everything in the full picture and be open to all of these new possibilities and really price out, you know, what could a best case look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, coming back to your question, I think it's, um, there, there's this distinction to be made between public, yeah, as, as uh, you said, Rachel, public, um, subs publicly subsidized services and services with uh, access open to everyone, so to the public. Um, and in, in general, I think the line between private and public mobility is getting more blurry. Mm. Um, and there is a lot of overlays of uh, operators with this new mobility as a service. So if the mobility as a service is, service is uh, operated by a private uh, company, but it uses and it leverages, of course, um, the public uh, transport service. Um, does it become a public transport service or is it still a private one? So it, it, it's, I think we need to rethink the way we describe these services. And so maybe go get out of the subsidies mm. uh, idea and more look at the access and um, how the access to these, how inclusive are they, how accessible are they, um, what kind of relationship they establish with other operators. Uh, so I think this is a discussion that we are still, still waiting for someone to, to take on, the lead on. Okay, final question, and then uh, I will let you go for lunch. It's important to have mm -hmm. uh, lunch to, to feed your brain for, for <laughs> afterwards. Uh, so Rachel first, but it's the same question to, to you, Nicola, if you just carry on answering it, really. And that is, what are you hoping to get out of this, this summit um, professionally, uh, for your, your respective company and organization, of course, um, and perhaps what you've already got out of, of, of this summit, but certainly it's a, it's a three-day summit. So what are you hoping to achieve by being here? I have been heads down focused on the U.S. market and micromobility specifically, and I've produced a bunch of white papers. You can find them on our blog, our policy blog. Um, and it has been really refreshing to just see how different business models 
are approaching different markets. So for me, it's really understanding a more global perspective and understanding more global trends uh, and being able to take that knowledge back uh, to some of our customers um, and and uh, just op it's always fun to travel and see how different how different people are getting around. Um, so so that's really what I'm hoping to get out of it. And you didn't say networking once, great. <laughs> <laughs> so Nicolo, same same question. Yeah. So well, first of all, we had this panel debate to this morning. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, reaching out to uh, new potential um, new potential partners or yeah, I w wouldn't say customers but uh, new potential relations in this space I'm really um, as we said yeah this is still so we are here uh, and this means cycling is acknowledged by the public transport operators and organizations as at least a part of the solution we are all looking for um, to provide an alternative to pub, uh, privately uh, private mobility, motorized mobility. Um, but still, I think there is a lot of work to do uh, to create stronger connections between these uh, these sectors. And then, in general, we, as an advocacy organization, we often goes to uh, go to um, <laughs> car uh, center, car industry uh, conferences, and. We go there, and at every session we go, we ask the question, and what about bicycles? And what about uh, alternatives? And what about the environmental impact of this? So I'm here today. I will go to a few sessions. I've already been uh, to another one, um, specifically to raise the point and remind that public transport is the mass transit for uh, the majority of the people in cities, um, but we can achieve more if we manage to create the right connections, the right relations um, with other kind of mobility and other services in the city. Okay, so one, sorry, one supplementary <laughs> final question. This is definitely the last one. Um, and this is a scooter question, and maybe, um, Rachel, you could, you could answer this one just as much as the, the question is to, to, to Nicola. Could scooter um, companies uh, join the European Cyclist Federation, like you know, how the, the Union Cycliste Internationale mm -hmm. was trying to represent skateboarding for a while mm -hmm. at the Olympics. It's a, it's a wheeled sport, so they were like trying to, to get their teeth into, into skateboarding. Mm -hmm. Can you see the same happening with scooter companies? Should uh, the European Cyclist Federation be also representing the interests of, of the scooter companies and the, the scooter ring as a whole, if that's a thing? Mm -hmm. This is a huge question that we are trying to solve internally right now. Uh, we are we started the work uh, on some sort of position paper ref referring regarding uh, e-scooter sharing uh, operators, um, and it's quite a complex uh, topic because there are a lot for us. The active part of cycling is very important. So it's one of the main um, it's one of the main uh, benefits that cycling provides. Um, not only it's fast, it's convenient, it's uh, very low uh, demanding on infrastructure, um, but it provides very uh, important health benefits. On the other hand, <laughs> everything that is 
or as I said during the session, or can contribute to the creation of a solid ecosystem of alternatives to cars is beneficial in the end because it will bring better air quality, uh, better urban space, uh, more safety in cities, and so on. So I don't know really how to answer <laughs> to this question. Uh, on the one hand, we are very open because uh, this contributes to our main goal. On the other hand, uh, there, is, there are some uh, critical points that we have to address and uh, really understand where where we draw the line, basically. So I, I, will, I, I will ask the same question to you, but I'll just put a, a slight spin on it at the okay. same time. So a lot of the, um, uh, the scooter companies mm -hmm. are American. Some of them are now owned by companies like Uber. They have deep pockets. So we think of mm. I mean, that question there to, to Niccolo is, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if cycling was generous enough to allow these little scooters? But they're not. They are huge companies behind these things. They could gobble up cycling I I in a second. So my question to you would then be, given that uh, these scooter companies are actually now owned by massive uh, uh, global corporations, mostly US, and they have got deep pockets, and they are going to cities to, in the US and uh, in the EU here, trying to change regulations, trying to, to muscle their way in, and are able to do so because they have got that money. Should cycling be getting into, into bed with scooter and companies, or should we be like, no, we don't want to be involved with you? Um, so we've seen coalitions being formed between scooter companies and uh, like bike coalition uh, in in the U.S. Um, I don't know if it was bike coalition specifically, so don't quote me on that. But um, we are seeing coalitions between bikes and scooters. Um, I will quote Stephanie Pollock again, which is to say uh, she once said that uh, you know, we can discuss if scooters should be in the bike lane or on the sidewalk, but at the end of the day, we don't really have bike lanes and sidewalks on most of our roads. Um, and that's, I think, the crux of where the coalition should be built, which is again around infrastructure and knowing that in both cases, uh, you know, there is a need to be protected from automobiles. And uh, I think that's where there's been uh, recognition of, of combined interest. Uh, you know, scooter companies, whether they're huge or not, don't want, you know, people dying in the roads. Uh, and so they definitely know and value uh, the idea of cities building more safer infrastructure for small modes. Because we are fighting over the same space here. Yes, and I will quote another friend uh, who works for SFMTA, uh, Danielle Harris innovation lead, uh, she always says, I'm not going to have enough paint for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's this misunderstanding that, uh, you know, that organization is always the best thing for cities. Uh, we know that slower speeds and combined traffic actually create safer environments. Um, the problem is, is that we've been building these roadways for automobiles and they do need to be on their own um, if we're going to let them go the speeds, we've let them go. Uh, so how do we start thinking more collaboratively and in bigger coalitions around mixed traffic and slower speeds? Um, I think that's crucial to sort of building these collaborations. And I think as an advocacy group, one of the things to take advantage of in these larger companies is just how 
how connected they are with their base and the amount of communications that can go on when they have a connected base. So how do you, you know, mobilize that together to go and push for things at City Hall that really matter specifically infrastructure? Uh, that's a big opportunity for collaboration and a win-win. Thanks there to Niccolo Panozzo of the European Cyclist Federation and Rachel Zack of Remix. Before we go across to the bike share folks, here's David with a quick interlude. Hey Carlton, thanks so much. And hi everybody, it's David. And I am here, well you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember that's J-E-N-S-O-N usa.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. JensenUSA.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between. Components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. Thanks, David. Now, on with the rest of the show. In a moment, I'll introduce you to Sebastian Schliebusch of Nextbike. But first, here's Tanya Castle of PBSC. So Tanya, we met in mm -hmm. Oxford mm -hmm. at the e-bike summit, and here we are meeting again in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. Foreign country for you again. I mean, yeah, I'm presuming you've gone home to, to Montreal and, and been back many months since then. Yes. But yes. here we are again. Um, so what I didn't do the last time we met is actually put a tape recorder on you mm -hmm. and, and tell me about what you do for the company that probably everybody on this, this, this certainly the podcast, has, has probably ridden one of your bikes, even Hopefully. if they didn't know Hopefully. that they're riding one of your yeah. bikes. So tell us exactly what you are, and all the brands on here, of course, are, are, are not your company, mm -hmm. because you're making bikes for, for other people, and they, they assume that it's other people are, are making yes. your bikes. So who are you? Sure, sure. Well, that's a, a big question, but I will do my best to answer it. So I am uh, with PBSC Urban Solutions. It stands for Public Bike Share Company Urban Solutions. We are a Montreal, Canada based company. We supply uh, bike share systems all over the world, predominantly in uh, North America and South America, but increasingly coming into Europe, which is why we've run into each other so many times on this side of the Atlantic. Because the London bike. Yes, so we uh, were the original suppliers to the London system. First, Barclays now sponsored by Santander. We still continue to supply spare parts to London. Um, we just launched Barcelona. So we are the, the biggest station-based bike share provider in the world. 
We have around 80,000 bikes uh, on the ground right now. We've dramatically grown in the last two years, particularly in South America, where we have six cities in Brazil, including Rio, Sao Paulo, uh, and then we also just launched Buenos Aires in Argentina and Santiago in Chile. And then in Europe, as I mentioned, uh, Barcelona, we have Monaco coming up, we have Valence in France, uh, and many more to come, which I can't talk about now, but uh, more plane trips ahead. <laughs> so <laughs> you are in charge of which territories? What are you doing? Sure, it's quite broad. Um, we're a relatively small team, we're, we're lean and mean. Uh, all of us operate out of Montreal. And um, I am responsible for non-French, non-Spanish, non-Portuguese, non-Italian speaking Europe. That's okay. the easiest way to say that. Yeah, um, although I do speak French and Spanish, but my colleagues are native speakers. And then I also cover India, Central Asia, New Zealand, uh, East and Southern Africa. So you're uh, racking up the air miles. And North America, yes. Yes, I am, yeah which is, it help, it's helpful when you have priority boarding because <laughs> there's not always space for your carry-on. But I, at the same time, I do have a, a deep guilt over my carbon footprint. So it's a good thing I sell bike share systems. <laughs> so that's your carbon <laughs> offsetting is yes. you're getting on lots of flights, yeah. but yeah. Only business related and only selling bikes. And I also offset personally, just uh, a decision I made myself. So. Oh, there, there's trees being planted in Eastern Canada under my name. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're not the only mm -hmm. bike share mm -hmm. uh, company on the market. Mm -hmm. In fact, even if, though this is a, 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 in effect a bus, train, yes. um, public transit expo, yeah. there are quite a few companies yeah. here. There's about three or four bike share companies here actually, and I can see them from where we're sitting. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> so you kind of get on with them okay yeah because you're you're competing so you, yeah. one city will you'll be yep. like you'll be pitching against yep. another company to get yep. that particular yep. city bike share is very niche as as you can imagine uh it's also a relatively young industry so we are one of the oldest uh players uh in the game we've been around for over a decade and we've really proven our equipment over that time some of our bikes in london have over a hundred thousand kilometers on them in Montreal. So that's an individual bike yes, has yes, been ridden yes. more than 100,000 yes. kilometers, kilometers say. yeah. Uh, so I guess that would be what, 70,000 miles? Yeah. yeah. So that basically means your bikes are robust? Extremely robust, very cool. durable. All made in Canada, certified, tested internationally in independent labs in Switzerland and France. Uh, we do all sorts of tests, corrosion, rust, salt. Because some of our cities actually have microclimates that we learn from. Uh, and we, we adapt our bikes as needed. But as you, to go back to the original question of you know, the bike share industry, it is a small industry. Uh, we are all friends, we see each other at conferences, we go for dinner, have drinks. Um, we're all in it for the right reasons, which is really nice. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those industries you work in and you know everyone really believes in what they're selling. They're not just there. Uh, for the wrong reasons or for, for reasons that are less about the product um, and more self-interested. But at the end of the day, we also all recognize that we're competitors and that we're in business and uh, we have our own bottom lines. Uh, so we, we're very respectful, collegial, uh, but yes, we compete. We compete all the time. So we, we're constantly running into each other at um, requests for proposal responses. 
in various cities around the world. Uh, Barcelona is a great example. We were up against our competitors there, and you know, the best bid wins. So we happen to win that one. Sometimes we don't. <laughs> so I, I, there's enough for everyone to go around. There's a lot of cities around the world looking to tackle congestion. And then the dock solution, which mm -hmm. is what you're doing, mm -hmm. and then the, the one of the bike share booths that we can see just mm -hmm. across the, the aisle there. Uh, I, I believe Next Bike do have some docked They have uh, both docked and dockless. But they're mainly dockless. They're originally docked and they're moving towards dockless, so that's a business decision they made. I, I can't speak on their behalf. So we've made a business decision at PBSC to remain, we call it station-based um, versus docked because it's not just a docking point for your bike, it's the whole station. So at that station you can use the kiosk to rent a bike, so if I'm visiting a city uh, I don't want to sign up online for a membership, maybe I don't want to download the app, I can just whip out my credit card, go right to that station at the kiosk and rent a bike. Uh, the reason we've stayed with station base is, is there's a few of them actually. One, when I leave my house in the morning going to get the bus, I'm not looking on my app wondering where is the bus coming today? Where were the last GPS coordinates of this bus? Uh, I know where the bus stop is, it's reliable, it's convenient, it, um, it's always there. So we believe the same for a bike show. You want to know where your stations are, so you want them to be reliable. And then with bikes that the buses don't necessarily have as big of an issue with is you want them to be structured. So what we saw in 2017, 2018, when Dockless really came in or free floating, it was chaotic, it was disorganized, they littered the roads, they created issues with the public right away. There was all sorts of concerns around them. That being said, there was some convenience for a rider uh, that came with not having to take the bike back to a station. So as much as we want the reliability of a station basis, as I said, when I leave my house, I know there's three stations within a three minute walk from my home in Montreal. We've got great coverage in Montreal. All stations are around 300 to 500 meters apart. Let's say I rent it from one of those stations. I ride to a restaurant to visit friends. Uh, everyone else is doing that. I come out and, and there's no bikes there. Or I ride there and there's the station is full. Sorry, that's what I meant. I ride there and the station is full. There's rarely no bikes. It's, um, well, that would be inconvenient for me. So we've offered a geofencing solution. So that way you still maintain the structure of a station-based system, but you have the convenience uh, for the user. So I ride it. I have a 30 meter meter radius around the station that I can park the bike. So you still again maintain that organization, uh, but you have overflow options. Mm. So that's really what we've done and we spent a lot of time designing that and we've gone with a lock 2 lock versus um, the horseshoe lock that you would see on the dock, the completely dockless. So they just lock them in the middle of the street, they're there, they're left, we have a lock 2. So if you have a station with geofencing, the city would likely put in just Sheffield stands and the bike would be pushed to be locked to one of those because it's in those 30 meter radiuses. And then I am let's say I leave that restaurant and the station is still full. Uh, well, I would be encouraged to use the bike that's uh, with, on the overflow. So then again, you maintain that structure and organization and cleanliness, I guess you and could how's say. how's the lock? Where's, where's the lock? So it's on the basket at the front. We don't have one here. Okay, I'm looking, thinking, that's really well disguised. No, no, we didn't bring one with us this time. We, uh, we have a limited number of models at the moment, and that one, I believe, is on its way to Dublin right now. 
Oh, for, uh, for, Velo, for City. Velo City. Yeah. I'm not going to meet you in Velo City we again. We will be oh, okay. seeing each other again. Okay. So yeah, okay. if there's any more questions, come <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot to answer that. Yeah, I'll, just, oh, I'll, I'll be there to answer them and the rest of my team as well. We'll be so a big group. So that is definitely an issue with, for me that has, has, has mm -hmm. happened. I'm mm -hmm. sure it happens to everybody mm -hmm. who's got mm -hmm. a, uh, mm -hmm. going to get a station mm -hmm. bike. When you're rushing for a, to get to a train, mm. and you get and you, like in, in London, mm. I, I kind of I get to King's Cross, mm -hmm. and it's like it's full. Yeah, I've got a train in ten yeah. minutes, and then you got to like cycle yeah. to St Pancras. That's yeah. full. Where yeah. do, and then you're panicking. You're yeah. really trying to find something. And that point, you get the app out, yeah. and it's like right, there's one there. Yeah. And that's a huge so, issue. You just wouldn't use the system again if you yeah. miss your train. Yeah. No, and that's why we've we've developed the geofencing option, but truthfully and not to throw any system under the bus uh, but that it would be an operational issue so we have a software that comes with our equipment that can uh, identify I, that. yeah can you can determine patterns usage patterns from looking at that software uh, over the course of a few months so that would be an operational challenge that the operator would need to address yeah um, we also have developed something called the valet station so in the morning in Montreal for example Bixie is extremely popular. That's the name of the brand in Montreal, the bike share, company, bike share brand, sorry. And uh, everyone rides the center of the city. And instead of putting in extra stations, what they do is they just have someone who works for Bixie with a tablet checking bikes in in a roped off area. And then at the end of the day, they just have that person with the tablet checking bikes out. So it's called a valet station. So it's, it's really great uh, when you have high traffic flows, particularly on nice warm sunny days in Montreal, or if you have a, a baseball game, a football game, something where you, you know you're going to experience peaks in ridership, you don't need the infrastructure there like necessarily. You just need someone with a, a scanner and an iPad. A, well, a tablet, I should say. Because I've missed coming into a major city mm -hmm. and not having bike share because mm -hmm. it's been removed and they're, mm -hmm. they're, mm -hmm. is it smooth coming into, into, into Stockholm? Uh, no, it's actually a new upstart uh, called Voy. So, Smooth is in Helsinki. Ah, right, yes, okay. yeah. Okay. Neighbor to the, to the east. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. I've come into a city and it's like, and I haven't been able to get mm. a, a. Yeah, Smooth does remove their system from Helsinki in the wintertime. I can't speak for them as to why, but. But uh, that's a decision between them and the city. And then I Montreal guess. did as well. Montreal has a very clear reasoning behind it. So, in, ter in European terms, Montreal is a very young city. In North American terms, it's a very old city. It's almost 400 years old, very narrow streets, and uh, we get a lot of snow. Typical Canadian winters, what you would think of when you think of Canada. So we get, you know, feet and feet of snow, and we have a lot of snow removal operations. So because the roads are so narrow, um, most of the stations are designed to be in parking spots. So they were designed to take up parking spots, uh, and the snow removal trucks just cannot pass through with the stations in those parking spots. In fact, when there's snow removal in Montreal, they put up signs and they blare sirens, uh, so you have to move your car as well. So they're just massive, massive snow removal operations and the roads are just too narrow. But they are, it's not that the equipment itself can't stay out all year round, it stays out all year round in Toronto, Chicago, Minneapolis. It's, it's a specific challenge in Montreal just from the narrow streets and the, the snow removal. In newer cities like Toronto, Chicago, uh, most of the stations are not in parking spots, they're on 
uh, larger sidewalks, squares, plazas, so it, it's just unique to Montreal. But we do have a lot of winter cycling in Montreal actually, because uh, they do have a policy of plowing the, the cycle lanes before the, uh, before the car lanes. Sweet. Mm -hmm, so where did Bixi, well, I know this, Yes. but uh, uh, let's put this on tape. Where did Bixi come from? Yeah. Because it, yep. it was owned yeah. by the city, yep. basically. So yep. what, what's, what's what happened then? There was all sorts of yes. problems. Uh, so this is before my time with PBSC and uh, being a Montrealer. I'm originally from southern Ontario, so the Toronto area, and then moved to Quebec, moved to Montreal to join PBSC. But uh, it is a storied past. So the mayor of Montreal, in about 2007 uh, went to the city of Lyon and Lyon was the first city in France to do bike share on a grand scale. Most people think it's Paris mm. but it was actually Lyon and he loved it and he said we need this in Montreal taking into consideration the unique challenges that Montreal has such as those I spoke about earlier. Snow removal, rain, ice, snow, uh, 30 degree temperature differences within a day even you know it's 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 a really harsh environment beautiful city but harsh environment and uh, so the city of Montreal invested over 27 million dollars to develop the Bixie system which is why it's an incredibly robust durable uh, well thought out uh, well designed system that still lasts to this day the majority of the original bikes are still on the streets in Montreal and if you came to visit the city, you would know which one they are because they have the three speeds versus the five speeds. And they're all over all over the city still. Uh, so the city invested this money, developed the system, but it was a bit ahead of its time. So it had hard times financially making a go of it, but at the same time it was growing in popular, there was growing interest around the world. So they started to expand. and. Uh, for various reasons, the province said to Montreal, well, you're, you're a city, you're not an exporter, you've got to, you know, break off that arm, you can't be doing that. Mm -hmm. So the city, and then there was also some issues with um, finance and, and running the system, uh, and, the, and then it was, uh, it was sold, basically. Actually, it was divided. So the operations were still done by Montreal. To this day, they're still done by Montreal. But the manufacturing component, which is PBSC, which has always been profitable, was privatized. So, and since we were privatized, we've grown tremendously. Uh, and, and actually, since that time also, Montreal system is actually now self-sustaining and actually makes a bit of a profit. So basically, what it comes down to is, as I said, it was a bit ahead of its time and it was a lot of growing pains. But we are tremendously grateful to the city of Montreal for, for developing the equipment in the system. And now uh, we're all over the world and all sorts of cities are benefiting from it. And we were the first bike share com company in North America that was strictly bike share. The systems in Europe were advertising companies that used bike share as a way to enter markets, win advertising com uh, contracts on the streets. It's, it's very big business, bus shelters, street signs. Uh, we were strictly bike share. So it was a different mo business model to begin with. Again, they had revenue streams coming in from advertising where bike share didn't. It was strictly through users in the beginning. So the financial difficulties that the city of Montreal went through really were the growing pains of a brand new business model and a brand new product in North America. And uh, I mean, just last year, the system only operates off eight months of the year. We had over five million rides. And we have about 6,000 bikes in Montreal. So it's incredibly well utilized and beloved by Montrealers. And uh, yeah, those early years were tough, but uh, they led to something fantastic. And now we're in over 30 cities around the world 
thanks in large part to the to the vision and the work of the city of Montreal. And this show is a a key one for you to be at because you want to be meshed with transit networks because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in many cases you're not going to be replacing a, a, mm -hmm. a journey you're going to be the end of yeah, the journey so yeah. you're going to get off the metro you're going to yeah. train yeah and you can use a bike we do see ourselves as a first last first and last mile solution which is really when you look at any sort of transit uh, studies you know one of the reasons why people don't choose transit and decide to opt for their personal car is because it's they have a first mile and a last mile to get to that station and it's just a bit too far to walk uh, people don't necessarily feel comfortable with it so they decide to drive well a bike is the perfect it's the perfect distance for a bike uh, so it's a bikes are really used as a feeder and the Netherlands is a great example of that they have the hub and spoke model where people ride their bikes to train stations ride the train into their work and then take the train back and jump on that bike that they left at their station close to their home and ride home. And it's really a complementary model. Um, and e-bikes are actually going to extend extend that uh, distance even further. So you know, a mile or a kilometer is, is very easy on a mechanical bike. But for those who are a little bit older, maybe have had knee surgery or less comfortable on a bike, uh, maybe don't feel as though they're healthy enough to do it right off the get-go, the e-bike is a great solution and we're seeing the, the increase in popularity of our e-bikes. We did a pilot project last summer in Montreal and they were getting double the rides that the mechanical bikes were getting. Yeah, extremely well received uh, and we're seeing that in our cities across the world that have the mixed e-bike mechanical. So I'm very convinced that uh, the e-bikes will end up growing in popularity and uh, not only replacing that first and last mile but might actually replace car journeys on a broader scale of uh, just people traveling maybe two to four miles. Um, really an e-bike gets you there further, gets you further, faster and sweat free is what I like to say. And your decision to go for, mm -hmm. for stations mm -hmm. then makes sense because yeah. that's where you yeah. recharge these things. It makes a lot of sense. So there are other, there are other companies on the market that uh, have decided to opt for for a dockless e-bike, but it's very, very operationally expensive. And again, PBSC using our 10 years of experience. So the true cost of bike share is not the capital cost of setting up the system, it's the operational cost of running the system. And very, not everyone realizes that in the beginning. Um, so it does make sense to spend a little bit more on your CapEx and save on your OpEx because that's gonna be the longevity of your system there. It's the year over year over year of running it. So um, with the way we've designed the e-bike, it keeps your operational costs low because it can integrate with all the existing, so if you have a mechanical system, the e-bike charges at all the existing stations. We have four bike models, they're all interchangeable at stations and uh, it keeps your operational costs low because instead of having to collect those bikes at the end of the day, uh, they just charge on their own. And we've thought long and hard about, well, how do we ensure the best user experience? And, let's say a battery is starting to go low, well, the station will recognize that and automatically lock the bike, take it out of service uh, until it hits a certain point. And we can set those amounts with our, with our cities um, and partners. So that way you're not going to have the, the situation where you might have with a dockless bike if someone's rented the bike riding and then, well, the battery dies. That's not great when you've, you've decided to ride this bike up a hill. So we've really spent a lot of time thinking, and you brought this up earlier, earlier is that you know people do use the bike as a complement to their train, bus, tram journey and we actually can integrate with public transit cards so that's a really unique feature of PBSC as well as 
because we have a different model than some of our, our the other companies on the market, we really look to work collaboratively with cities and, and complement the existing transit versus cannibalize it. Um, so if you have a tap and go card for a bus, in X city, you can use that same tap and go card for a bike in X city. Uh, that's uh, something we're happy to do. So it really creates a complete transit ecosystem and gives people options. Sebastian, uh, we are here at, at the UITP conference summit um, in wonderful sunny Stockholm. And you've been to previous conferences. You've been to, you're saying it's Montreal one. You went to was it Dubai? Mm -hmm. You said you went to. So you've been here a number of of times. So bicycles, public transport, never the twain shall meet. Normally, but with bicycles, with last mile transportation solutions, the the, the worlds are now coming together. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, what exactly are you doing with uh, UITP in in mobility? Right. I mean, we at Nextbike, we have already pursued the a path to an integration of public transport and bike sharing uh, at a very early stage. So um, we started our business in 2005 and from the very first days we've trying to engage with public transport operators in our partner cities, uh, which was pretty hard in the beginning because there was not really this um, open-mindedness of uh, integrating other forms of transit. and. Uh, through the work with UITP and also on national levels like the VDV in Germany, um, we engage with uh, the public transport industry to make them aware that there are other forms of uh, transit which may uh, provide a complementary service to the traditional network. And um, I was personally engaged in and I'm still engaged in this Combined Mobility Commission, which is a very uh, forward-thinking uh, commission within UITP who is um, looking to how, uh, how to integrate uh, other forms and new mobility solutions into the network. And uh, bike sharing is bridging the gap between a 19th century vehicle, the bicycle, and a 21st century technology and uh, other forms of mobility. So that's where it's becoming really exciting. So mass mobility as a service. That's an absolutely booming part mm. of, of public transit. The integration, basically, of everything. So where do bicycles mm -hmm. fit into mm -hmm. to, to mass? Which for us, mass is a wonderful tool to um, facilitate and accelerate the relationships we can build with uh, public transport operators. Um, it's, um, yeah, the success or the performance of our schemes uh, really shows that if you are integrating the bike sharing into uh, public transport uh, ecosystem, uh, the numbers of usage goes up, the numbers of people using the scheme is uh, way higher than uh, if you have it as a standalone system. And uh, you need to provide an easy and seamless access to uh, systems. People don't want to have 10 different accounts and 10 different apps and uh, 10 different booking and payment systems. And that's where Mars really plays a role. Um, I still feel that there's a lot to do uh, to the future in, also, uh, in terms of standardization, in terms of um, making it even more seamless and um, I think a big obstacle to this at the moment is still this bit of bias between different industries, different operators, the public and the private sector of who's the aggregator, who shall manage the platform and uh, um, I really, really hope that we're getting over this to um, make it really a widespread global uh, phenomenon. So in Stockholm, I'm using the public transport, which is which is globally famous. It's, it's a fantastic system here. Right. But I the agree. last mile transportation has been letting me down. Yes. Um, because 
the city bike isn't actually here anymore. So they, yes, they, they, they've withdrawn their, yeah. their, their was, it, was it a docked system? It was a docked system. So yes. it was a docked system and it's no longer here. And for me as a cycle person, mm -hmm. every city I go to, I look to get the, 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 the bike share. So it's not here. Mm. So that's a big, I mean, big drop in my... It is, absolutely, yeah. They have procured it newly, so in a couple of months time, I'm not 100% involved in this, so I don't know exactly whether they are still launching in 2019 or 20, uh, 2020, but uh, a new city bike scheme will come to, uh, to Stockholm, definitely. I'm a bit skeptical about the integration. Uh, I mean, everybody's talking about integration, but then when it comes really to the, uh, the practicalities, uh, I feel that uh, not many schemes in the world have really this deep integration how it should be. Like, uh, take the London scheme, for example. Yeah? You have a perfect Oyster Card infrastructure. Why can't you use the Oyster Card on the London uh, bicycle scheme? That's, uh, that's a big shame. Uh, and uh, I think this is really important that we're using those tools and um, technologies which are already there, whether it's an app-based mass system or whether it's a card-based system, you know, that's, that's secondary, but you have already a key to transport in your pocket, just use it for every single item. And this is something which needs to be managed and controlled and procured uh, at the end by the public sector. And uh, if we're seeing those developments like the past one, two, three years where a, a big variety of new players enters the public space without thinking about these kind of integrations first. And I know there are a lot of companies who are, don't have AP do API documentations to really integrate their services into a, a public network. That's not their focus right now. So I think we need to focus also on making this available, this, con this, this connection. So those new, new players you, you mentioned, so they're like the Mobikes mm. of, of this world. The, the Chinese, basically, the Chinese operators have come in. I mean, you, you've had um, dockless systems for... From the very beginning yeah, at the from, end. Yeah, for a long, long time ago. So you've seen these companies come in, get all of the oxygen of publicity mm. of, wow, this is an, this new newfangled thing. It's like, you've been doing it for, for a number of years. And now they seem to have gone again they're, they're, mm. they've, they've certainly they've really contracted mm. an awful lot so what is that something that you've been pleased to see they've made a space for you or you're unhappy that they're going away what's what's your view uh, of that sector I mean there are two sides to look at it like with every development yeah? so on the one hand side we've seen a massive publicity uh, for bike sharing um, before bike sharing customers tended to be the pioneers and a bit more um, progressive thinking people. Um, now it's suddenly it's out there everywhere and um, it's in our markets where we're operating it also helped to differentiate between the perception of a quality service provider who is following SLAs and who has certain standards in the product and um, other companies. Huh? And, um, I think for us, I mean, we had the, uh, the greatest year ever in, in uh, the UK, in Germany, in terms of ridership, in terms of uh, perception and uh, our customers, they perceive our service really, really well, especially when they're comparing it to, uh, to other services. So that's where it has helped, but of course we need to make sure also that the concepts and the perception of bike sharing is not deteriorating uh, by a number of bad quality uh, providers and that's where 
Um, we are working in, as an industry right now also to um, establish some standards, to work together on certain uh, topics on those companies who have been there for some time and who have this experience and who are working specifically on the local level to uh, facilitate those local partnerships. Uh, they know what it is all about and we need to make sure that we are not letting the industry uh, deteriorate uh, by people who don't know really how to operate. And you haven't got any scooters? Uh, we at Nextbike, we don't uh, produce scooters, no. I mean, our platform is able to facilitate that. Um, it's just, uh, by our DNA, we are bicycle people. So, I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon right now, but we also see there are a lot of accidents, there are a lot of uh, problems happening with scooters as well. And um, whether it's... Uh, the scooter is just a type of vehicle. Next year, another type of vehicle can come in, yeah? and uh, there's so much development here right now. Um, I mean, we're putting our investment eggs into the bikes and into the e-bikes and cargo bikes and uh, any kind of active mobility uh, vehicle because we really believe in the public uh, health benefits and uh, objectives of the cycling. Um, so I'm not so familiar with your cargo bike, so I'm very familiar with your standard bike because right. that's when I go to Eurobike, uh -huh. you know, you get a, you get a, in with the show package almost, you get right, a, exactly. you get a, Euro, a, a, a next bike to ride mm. around to and from the, the fair in Friedrichshafen, but I'm not familiar with your cargo bike, mm -hmm. so what have you, what have you got coming on there? Now we have had uh, two pilot projects in Konstanz and in Norderstedt for the last two years now, um, just to um, to evaluate what kind of cargo bikes makes more sense for users. Electric? Uh, these ones weren't electric, but of course electric cargo bikes uh, definitely make sense uh, to widen the target group, also to make the, uh, the ride more easy. If you carry your kids and some groceries, that's definitely helpful. Oh, so it's, you, you yes, can put kids on these things as well as how do you... Yeah, I mean, they just, they just climb on the back and they've got handles and... No, so we have the boxes in the front okay. and um, they're coming with a, with a seat bench and uh, some... So it's like more like a Christiana type uh, bike. Kind a, of, a box yes. bike, back, kind of, back yes. seats. Yes, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I see this from my personal everyday life. Yeah? I'm, I don't own a car, I have a car club membership, I use Nextbike, I use my bicycle, but when I need to go for grocery, yeah, I, I'm either struggling to carry what I can do on my uh, regular bike, which is not that much. Uh, now I have a little boy, yeah? and uh, how do I, does this fit together? And it fits, in the best case, it fits in, um, in a cargo bike. So I think really there's, um, even more than with scooters, there's a future for these kind of vehicles because it really gives different use cases a chance. So where could they be rolled out? I mean, if there's, there's two pilot areas, where potentially could they be in every city? I think cargo bikes make sense in every city. Yeah? So you have grocery stores all over. Uh, how do you carry your bags uh, back home? I mean, there are delivery services. Okay, that's also a direction where the industry is going right now. But uh, if you don't want to depend on others to carry your stuff, but you do it by yourself, I think the cargo bike has a big chance for success basically in every city. So maybe many people will own bicycles, but not everybody's going to own a cargo bike. Because it's also a parking problem. Yeah? Where do you park it? In front of your house? In your garage? You don't definitely cannot bring it upstairs to your room. So that's a big, big drain. On are they going to be docked products or no. are they... No. You've got to, but you geofence them, they've got to be yes. left somewhere. Yes, exactly. And how's that gonna 
that's going to be what's going to be that's what you've been learning from the, the pilot project that that's the best way of getting yeah. cargo bikes out there. I mean, the cargo bikes. What is a docked station used for? So it's for extra security of the vehicle. It's potentially for charging for electric vehicles. It's to give a clear um, orientation and um, a good um, structure in the city space. So these kind of these are the three main advantages of a, of a station-based system. No? And um, I think the stations do make sense in a lot of cases where you have a high pressure on the uh, or a high frequency of people where you want to make sure that there's a certain tidiness in the city space. Um, but also from a mobilization point of view to get all the permissions from a um, station planning uh, point of view it's and also an investment point of view it is quite a challenge to install a city-wide station-based system. And um, their dockless systems have also an advantage. I mean, both, both versions have advantages and disadvantages, and you need to combine it in a, in a good way. And with cargo bikes, I think because of the heaviness of the vehicle, people just don't take them away like this. You cannot just lift them and uh, put them in a truck that easily. Also, when they come with uh, IoT security devices, uh, I think it's a reasonable. Um, just, it's reasonable to say that uh, the, the the theft uh, rate with cargo bikes, I think, is, is not so high. It's <laughs> yeah. with, with shared cargo bikes, so we're pretty confident in this. So, who are you talking to here at the, the UITP conference? Who? What? What are you? What have you got your booth here for? What are you? What are you attracting? Well, we are talking to public transport authorities, to public transport operators, to um, cities um, who are interested to hear more about uh, our experiences in integrating public bike sharing into wider city networks and, and mobility networks. That's uh, the main theme here. And do cities want docked versus dockless? Where, where do they... It depends a bit from market to market, not necessarily from city to city. Um, for example, in the UK, I see a revival of the dock system right now. Every single city who is procuring right now, they are looking primarily for a station-based system. Maybe here and there with some flexible elements of some certain areas with geofencing, but the predominant uh, design should be a station-based scheme. Um, in Germany, we see a lot of cities they are going um, towards a hybrid solution where you have certain stations at certain points, but then a city-wide uh, flex zone. Was, and that's a concept we've started last year in uh, our home city, Leipzig, and we're replicating now in Bonn, in Düsseldorf, and um, most of the schemes we have in Germany. Uh, we have not virtual point stations, but we have street areas or certain streets where you can return the bicycle anywhere along those streets and um, so we've realized that about 90% of the returns are at those corridors which helps us uh, in our rebalancing efforts because it's uh, significantly minimizing it uh, but still it uh, gives a certain level of flexibility to the um, to the users plus if you're enriching this with a general flex zone where you can with a surcharge uh, can return the bicycle outside of those return zones uh, then um, the operator gets something if you if, if you as a user you have the flexibility to return it anywhere but you need to pay a little bit of extra that's um, then good equilibrium so the bikes you've got here on display mm -hmm. um, talk talk me through them They're, we've got some electric and some, some not electric correct Yes, so yeah, the, the, stand, the regular bike is uh, our standard model. So in most of the 
uh, schemes we're operating now, right now, the, uh, the majority of our bikes is regular. But of course, we see the demand of electric bikes uh, is increasing day by day, and um, that's it is the future. It's not necessarily the future for every single city for 100% of the fleet, because in the majority of trips uh, is the first mile, last mile, one kilometer, 1.5, two. The majority of cities is predominantly flat. Even if you have some hilly cities, there are still a lot of areas where you are on the same level. So you don't necessarily need everywhere the full fleet with electric bikes. But of course, you have uh, electric bikes can make a difference when you have already a well-established system uh, with a lot of uh, users and you want to extend your target group. You want to grow into the periphery, connect with a- uh, Longer distance. Exactly. Mm. And also to um, overcome topographic challenges. I mean, these are, really the use cases where the e-bike makes sense. Topographic challenges, hills. Yes. <laughs> yeah. right. Okay. And they are docked, so uh, they need to go yeah. to a station. Yes, we're charging them with a, in a station. Um, we also have working on an um, exchangeable battery right now. So this model right now is not uh, with an exchangeable battery, but that's coming in uh, Q3 2019. And, um, I mean, it's the, the, from the operations perspective, of course, uh, you have when you are docking the bike in a station, you don't, you can uh, get a, get around the uh, the extra costs for swapping batteries and for having a team going around the city with kind of a vehicle, uh, ideally not a diesel-powered vehicle, but nevertheless, yeah, and so. But then you have, of course, the installation costs for the for the station. So there again, it's a question how how you're designing the, the system and probably a combination of both things make, do make sense. You know, where, that you are installing stations wherever feasible and uh, wherever, wherever you have a high number of um, trips expected and returns expected and that you're then uh, also allowing the, the operator to, to exchange batteries if bikes are um, not being able to be charged because the station is full or something so that there's a little bit of uh, flexibility there. So I think a combination makes very much sense. Thanks to Sebastian Schlebusch of Next Bike There, and before that you heard from Tanya Castle. Next, we'll start with some French history as I talk with the UITP's Mohamed Metzgani. Can I actually start you? Yeah. Where, where you actually got your master's in transport in 1988. Yes. Uh, and the re that jumped out at me. I don't know how much of the history of that organization you know, but it's a very historic body. This is the organization that created all the roads and bridges the, in the France. National, National de yeah, yeah. post-revolutionary Napoleon. Yes, yes, yes. And this is where, I mean, I, I wrote a book on, on roads. It's okay. called Roads Are Not Built For Cars. And I actually mentioned this particular association because yes. they were, you know, the French were building fantastic roads yeah. long before anybody else. And that's where motoring came from eventually because yes. the French roads were so good. Exactly. And motoring but, sprang from France. But mm. this, uh, master was the maybe the only one at that time who, which was not oriented towards infrastructure it was about management of transport and not about developing infrastructure so it was a kind of uh, out of the box master in this in this uh, school uh, I was part of the second or the third year I mean the th third uh, uh, group of students who followed it and uh, I discovered transport, how I discovered this, because I was studying in Tunisia, in the National School, Engineering School in Tunisia, and we had, uh, during the last year of uh, my studies in Tunisia, we had uh, uh, visitor professors 
from l'école polytechnique fédérale de Lausanne, the Polytechnical School of Lausanne. They are also very, very well known for, for, for transportation studies. And we had one week de delivered by them training about transportation. And you know, I, I decided to study transportation after that week. And of course, in Tunisia, we are very connected to France. So I went to mm -hmm. Paris and I studied uh, in the École Nationale des Ponts Chaussées because at that time there were only, uh, I think it was, there was one uh, master in uh, Paris and another one in Lyon with the Laboratoire d'Economie des Transports, the, the Transport Economics Lab. Uh, and so I went to Paris and I studied and, and since then I work in the transportation. So it was almost an accident getting into transport. It, in was, an ac it was, a, I discovered it when mm. these professors came to Tunisia and then uh, I didn't decide by accident, by I, disco I, I discovered it by accident, yes. So describe your, your career, you can't describe every single no. month and <laughs> year, but get, to where you've got now, where, where have you come from to, to get to your, your elevated position here now with the UITP? You know, you know I, I came to UITP, uh, I would not say by accident, but it was like uh, I was uh, working in European, I used to work in a consulting company in France, and then uh, I uh, got to know someone who was working for a Belgian company on the same project, European project. And this person uh, was uh, hired by UITP. And so I, and I, you know, I discovered UITP through him. And then I told him, by the way, if there is any uh, chance that I join UIP, UITP, let me know. And one day he called me and said, you know, there is a position, a vacant position at UITP. If you want, you can apply. And I applied and I was recruited and, you know, Two weeks after he left the the, the organization, actually, he, he he went to something else. But anyway, I and I had the opportunity to be hired by someone who retired one week one year later, and so he was the director of that department, and I became the director of the department, and so it was 20 years ago when I, I joined UITP 20 years ago. I became director to one or half year later, and uh, and then. Um, I was involved. I, I, sta I started in UITP, and uh, at a certain uh, time, I had uh, I don't know maybe different view on how this association should be should be ma not managed. I would not say should be managed, but different view on of how we we, we 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 should work. I would say, but as I said, I'm I'm really I consider myself passionate about public transport, and I I love UITP. <laughs> so I told that the at my boss at that time, you know. I love public transport, I love UITP, but I have a different view than you. I would like to stay involved, but outside of UITP. So we decided uh, together and I left UITP actually at that time, it was in uh, 2006, uh, to work as a consultant. And I continued working for UITP as a consultant and UITP, they asked me to help them in the uh, Middle East uh, by uh, opening the office in Dubai. I helped them organizing the Congress in Dubai that the, the, that Congress 2011 and uh, developing the training program it was the first contract I got from UITP was to develop a training program for the uh, for, and the public transport fundamentals training that now is, 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 is uh, one of our best sellers I, I would say and uh, and uh, then uh, a new uh, a new secretary general was appointed uh, in 2012 Alain Flores and he approached me to, uh, uh, to join and to be his deputy. And actually, 
uh, he wanted someone, I think, who knows UITP, but who was not there already, or was not in the existing uh, team. And uh, also for me, it was, uh, when I left at the end, it was very, uh, very, uh, let's say, uh, benef beneficial, because I, I had the opportunity to see UITP from outside. Uh, uh, when I, before joining UITP, I mean, I didn't know uh, much about the association, so I couldn't, like, you know, uh, but once you know it, and then you go out, and you look at it from a different perspective, then you can see also what, what kind of things you can improve, what kind of things you can bring. So let, let's describe to people what UITP is. I mean, you've got something like 1,900 it's, member companies? Uh, yes, so first it was created in 1885, as the Association of European Tramways with 63 members, nine countries, based in, in Brussels since the beginning. People think we are in Brussels because of the European Commission. No, it's the European Commission. Which they followed you. In Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, and, uh, and it was born as the Association of Tramway Operators and then buses and metros and then transport authorities and then the uh, supplying industry and then taxis and so, uh, and Progressively, it became the association of all stakeholders. And this is, I would say, the, an asset for UITP. It's really a, a big difference with all other associations. Uh, generally, the associations, they have uh, one type of stakeholders or one region. For, and, but in UITP, we have, it's a worldwide association and with all stakeholders. Uh, uh, we have 1,700 now uh, in 100 countries. And uh, it represents a network of about 55,000 public transport professionals. Because well, when we say member, we mean companies, organizations. Huh? Uh, the headquarters, so in Brussels, we have the European office in Brussels too, but we have 16 offices around the world on all continents. And in addition to that, we have what we call Center of Transport Excellence in Dubai, in Singapore, where we develop research uh, supported by the members there and research uh, for the members in these regions primarily. So that is what is UITP and as I said we have all stakeholders and uh, uh, of course it comes with a lot of challenges because when we want to take an official position on a certain topic we have to find the consensus of all of them but once the position is taken it gives us a lot of credibility. So where does micromobility fit into 1885 trams and then all the different editions have come on. Yes. Now the latest. Yes. Now the, the latest is members is we we we, yeah, we uh, two two days or three <coughs> days ago, Circ, uh, you know the e-scooter yep. uh, operator, they joined UITP. But we have Uber in UITP. We have Karim. We have Movil, uh, on-demand transport. Uh, so all of them. We have Navia, for example, automated uh, for autom autonomous vehicles, and and for us it's, there is logic. Because uh, public transport or mass public transport cannot, cannot answer the demand of all types of, of mobility. So we see mass public transport as the backbone, as the backbone that, and we need that backbone, except maybe in very small cities. But generally speaking, you know, cities above uh, 100,000 inhabitants, we need public transport as that backbone. And, and we need to develop it more because the demand for mobility is growing. 
and we need to develop it more and uh, faster. And this is one of the challenges we have. It takes too long between the day you decide to develop a metro system and the day it is put in operation, except maybe in China or, yeah. or in Saudi Arabia. Or so UK, 20 years. Yeah, but that's China, that's one year. That, that in China, for example, they built 100 metro lines mm. in 10 years. And, you, and so, and, and then the, the mass transit cannot answer the, 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 the mobility demand of everyone. So, and now we have tools. We have these digital tools. We have the sharing economy that is uh, making it possible to answer demands in low uh, demand uh, uh, period of time. And I mean, at night, on weekends, uh, on some low demand uh, zones, but also for people who don't want to use mass transit at the end, or people who want to uh, have the last mile and the, and the first mile served by another mode of transport. They, they, are, they are not close enough to the stations to, to walk, for example. And we see this uh, uh, micro-mobility modes as, as, as answering this kind of demand. So complementary, because complementary, if you can't get the definitely. people to the station, you're not going to get the exactly. people so on the product. We, we see them as uh, 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 allies. Uh, allies, yeah. Allies, yeah, yeah. yeah. allies to, 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 to mass public transport. But if we want this to happen, we need to make it easy to move from one mode to the other. It means we make it easy to pay for all modes together. We make it easy to get the information, to, to have timetables which are synchronized with the demand of the people. And, and, uh, and there where this mobility as a service could be, could be, could, could be of added value uh, by, uh, by offering this, uh, this, uh, the access to the whole uh, mobility, um, let's say, uh, package uh, with one uh, stop shop. So like an Oyster card type thing right, that exactly. unlocks the bike yeah, and uh, exactly, does exactly, everything. Exactly. And mm. we see this, this combination or this co uh, integration as the, uh, the uh, only way to uh, address the traffic congestion issue. Because if we better use the modes where at the right time, uh, uh, having the right mode at the right place, at the right time with the right price, it, uh, we will optimize the use of cars and uh, we will have, hopefully, I would not say less cars, but at least the growth of the car fleet will be uh, slowing down. Do you have an official policy on congestion charging and whether your organization is sure. massively in favor? Sure, sure, we are in favor of congestion charging and our members are in favor of congestion charging. And I would say with the condition that the uh, revenues generated are also partly, no, I would not say uh, fully, but part of it is used to develop public transport. Because if we uh, reduce, or if we impose restriction on the use of cars, we have to offer alternative. Uh, and, and the alternative is a good public transport system, cycle lanes, uh, uh, working conditions which are safe, etc. So uh, that's the... Uh, but you're then fighting against the car lobby. Which is much, I mean, you've got look, 1,700 companies, but the car lobby is massive yeah. and has we, big, big money. Uh, we, we, are, I would not, we are not fighting, uh, fighting against the uh, ownership of cars. We are fighting against the, or we try to promote rational use of cars. So we are fighting against the, uh, those people using cars for short distances. In France, 25% of the trips are less than one kilometer and 50% are less than three kilometers. 
So these are distances, one kilometers. Walking would be great because it would be healthy. And you know, and, and, and three kilometers is, I mean, bikes, and, uh, and uh, they can easily be used for this kind of distances. So we try to increase awareness about the, uh, the damages which are generated by, by this kind of, of, of car use. Because we are aware that in some situations you have no choice, and especially low demand areas, low, low density areas and rural areas. Uh, we can't have a bus uh, every 15 minutes in these areas, for example. So, so but we, we need to have a, an intelligent use, smart use of, 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 of cars. This is what, against what we are, we are, we are fighting. We are, I mean, and the, the, car, uh, the, the car industry we have in our membership, uh, uh, daughter companies of, uh, of, I mean, Movil is, of course, Mercedes and BMW is a daughter company of Mercedes. Now uh, we are talking to Moya, it's Volkswagen. So we, we don't have nothing against them, but, uh, but uh, uh, right, uh, having one person per car is, is, is not, is not uh, sustainable, even if this car is electric. So in the presentation that you gave and in other presentations which I've, which I've seen, that the point is being stressed yes. that urbanization is not slowing down 2030, no. 2040, 2050, all the, the movement is into cities and if you don't have that backbone, as you said, that, yes. that, that in a city you don't have that good transit, you're going you're gonna to grind the, to a halt. The city will, will collapse, I mean it won't be sustainable. For mm. sure. Uh, so we need that backbone, and uh, and those who think that uh, they can solve the issue, or who th who think that because they electrified everything, they they, they will so no maybe they will solve the air air quality issue, but the congestion will remain, and people if they s spend uh, uh, more time in an electric traffic jam, it's still a traffic jam, or in a clean traffic jam, it's still a traffic jam. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, so we, but you know, because some politicians, unfortunately, they think short term because they want to see the result during their, their term, I would say. And so they will uh, support the, the, uh, the development of uh, electrification and they want their buses to be electrified immediately, etc., etc. But an electric bus in a traffic jam, I, I, you know, the, the people will not use it more because it's electric. It will, since it will take longer to travel, they continue traveling by their car, with their cars. So we need uh, exclusive lanes for these buses first, and then we, should, we, ca we can electrify them, or we should electrify them. So. so one of the other themes I've picked up on here, including in the presentation last night, where you're talking about the, the, the SL stations here, which have got the yes, fantastic yes, yes. art. Part of this is to encourage people to use public transport yes. by making it attractive attractive yeah. and trendy and that then breaks the link with one person one car uh -huh. use because people are very bound up certainly the previous generation possibly were very bound up with owning a car whereas now millennials i'm yeah, sure you're picking they, up on they, is yeah they are they're now they're on transit because yeah. they can be on their smartphone yeah Exactly. And they can be transported and they don't want to drive anymore. So that you, you've got the, the future is going your direction. Exactly, exactly. And these young people, first, when we compare the, uh, those who are uh, uh, 25 years old now and those who, uh, from the previous generation, there are less driving licenses uh, now. And, uh, and secondly, these young people, they, they know very well how to combine the modes. 
and they will use an Uber, sorry to say Uber, but ride-hailing service uh, on Saturday evening when they go out with their friends. And, but on Monday, Tuesday, or weekdays, they use, they use mass transit. Uh, and 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 uh, on Sunday they will use a bike or a, or a scooter. Or, so they know very well how to com how to combine these uh, these modes. And this is the trend now. This is the trend. And uh, um, I, I will think about something else, but it will come. Yeah. That, so so that's that's the uh, the the trend. And um, we, uh, we 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 cannot uh, keep on uh, 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 trying to push. Uh, or, or to promote the use of cars uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's in, 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 the, in the present context. Uh, and yes, what I want to say is that also in public transport, they are recreating a bubble where they are like separated or, 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 or it's like they are, they are uh, uh, traveling independently from those who are with mm. them. Uh, they can listen to music, they can chat, uh, they can uh, uh, use uh, social media. Uh, they can talk to to their neighbors if they want. They can sleep if they want. So, so it's at the end they are more free. You know, we we think that when we drive a car, we are more free than using when using public transport. No, it's the other way around. Because when you travel a car, I mean, you are maybe free in your, in that car in the in the in the in the space. But you are in traffic jam. You can't find a, 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 a parking space easily. Uh, you know, you have to think uh, uh, at what time I have to leave my office to be at that place uh, on time, etc., etc. So, uh, and uh, yeah, things are changing. Let's, let's go to this this tweet, and this is from actually last month. Yes, this is, yes, this is your tweet. tweet I, yes, exactly. So I'll just, I'll just read it out. If you provide more car lanes, you get more cars. Yeah. With bus lanes, you get better bus service, more passengers. With bike lanes, more cyclists, better side, uh, sidewalks, you get more pedestrians. Yeah. So you're looking to increase all of those modes because they feed into public transit. Exactly. Look, uh, I. Uh, I am a Secretary General of a public transport association, but uh, I am first a citizen. And, uh, and first is walking, it's not public transport. First, we have to provide the right infrastructure for safe and, uh, and comfortable walking conditions. Okay? And then biking, I mean cycling, because you know, it's good. I mean, there is no pollution, it's, uh, you can exercise, so it's good for health. So, and and then yes public transport and the shared modes so so that's the i would say the the classification the, the hierarchy yeah, the yeah, provision exactly exactly and uh, and uh, and you know sometimes i think i uh, about cars and uh, i compare them to uh, smoking a cigarette when you smoke you go to a smoking area and we should have the same with cars if you want to drive your car go to that lane not to the whole to the whole uh, to the whole road to the whole no you have your lane you drive in it and the rest, it should be for the majority of the people. Because one person per car, when you see the number of people using their cars compared to the number of people in a bus, or, or look at the, uh, at the Netherlands, in the Netherlands or in Copenhagen, the people using bikes, there are, you know, there are traffic jumps of bikes. Because we, keep, we give them only a very small part of the road and the big part is for cars. So uh, we have to, uh, the, it was the mayor of Bogota who said it's, uh, uh, de yeah, democratically. I mean, if we have a democratic approach to mobility, we should really put cars aside. And I agree. So now you will tell me you are against the car lobby. No, I'm with you. The bad use of cars, or it's, it's more about the use, how we use it. 
And if we give all this mass and all, people will not, we, we, we lose less cars and we may have less second cars in the families first and, and then maybe no cars at all. Thanks to Mohamed Metzgani there. Next, we have Transport for Greater Manchester's Raphael Kester. Uh, Raphael, uh, good to, uh, to, to meet you, but you're from Manchester. I'm <coughs> from Manchester, head of innovation there. But you're not from Manchester originally? No, I'm from Colombia in South America, but I spent the past 30 years in, in the UK. How come? Uh, I went to do a, a master's there in environmental planning, town planning and transport. Uh, and I met my wife there, an English lady, and the rest is history. So I've been working on uh, the top sort of uh, transport authorities around the country, so Birmingham, Manchester, and uh, near London as well. So Manchester is kind of exciting to a bike nerd like me because of the Chris Boardman link. Yeah, yeah. And with some amazing infrastructure you're putting in. Yeah, yeah. And this is all part and parcel of being integrated. Yeah, I mean, b basically that's our strategy. We, we have a, a strategy that we wrote a good three years ago called 2040. So it's looking at where we want to be in 2040. We have huge challenges, uh, not only pollution and congestion, but it's a growing region. Uh, 200,000 new homes, uh, 250,000 new jobs uh, by 2035. But that will generate an additional, an additional 1 million new trips every day. So what we're trying to do is move that uh, to sustainable ways, at least a million of those trips that will exist. We want to move them into public transport and active travel. Uh, Big challenge because currently it's uh, 60, 40, 60 percent of people drive their private vehicles. 40 use public transport. Our target is to make it 50-50 in the next 10, 15 years. And of course, cycling is a key element of it. Uh, I mean, we have future mobility as well with other ideas, but at the moment we're investing around 180 million pounds on cycle infrastructure. Uh, we have the mobile experience, which was quite rich for us. Uh, we run a, run a pilot with them uh, for a, a good year. Uh, we were the first seat in Europe to have mobile because the, the lady that was the owner then uh, had very good links with Manchester, the university, and she wanted Manchester to be the first one in, 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 in Europe. So. We ran the, the pilot, uh, it went really well uh, for the first six months, then she sold the company and the business model changed a bit and they didn't do some of the things that uh, they promised. So at the end they decided to, to, to stop the pilot and move, move away. They did take all their bikes so it didn't cost us anything and they didn't leave a mess behind. So. It was a very good experience. We had a lot of data, a lot of insights into uh, bike sharing. So now we're building the next generation as part of this whole program with Chris Borman. And we are going into e-bikes, also normal sort of uh, pedal push bikes, uh, 
uh, with uh, a, a docked and dockless uh, solution, which we want to see. That, is, that the, the, the authority will own or Yeah, we will tender because basically just before mobile came, we had, we were ready to sort of, uh, we, we did a study like three or four years ago and it say it's not the time, uh, the technology is still a bit raw, the infrastructure is very heavy, very expensive. We repeated that uh, study just before mobile came and it say you're at the right time technology is here with very good exciting solutions the physical infrastructure uh, is lighter uh, has reduced price uh, so we were going to go out but mobile came and said look uh, we want to come into Manchester it won't cost you anything we develop uh, a really good uh, memorandum of, uh, of understanding that became we were the first city in, uh, I think, worldwide to develop this sort of uh, uh, MOU that then other cities adopted and, and improved uh, because no one knew about how this talkless thing was going to, to work. So we said, well, fine, if, if it's not costing us anything, if we have a good collaboration agreement, let's do it and see how it works. Uh, and uh, so we, 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 we at that po moment sort of stopped what we intended to do that was a, a formal tender and all that stuff. Uh, but now we have a lot of, we're wiser, we have a lot of knowledge, more data, understand, because they did bring uh, 1,000 bikes, all the substandard, uh, not for the European market. They, it did give us a lot of data we work with um, uh, through our uh, open innovation program with young startups. Some of them develop really good solutions on the back of the data that Mobile was providing. So we have something called CSENS that is a small startup. Of Northern Ireland. Yeah, and, and uh, through the programs that we had of open innovation, they it helped them sort of uh, the, uh, improve the, 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 the solution, and now they're sort of sponsored by the British Cycling Federation, which is based in Manchester as well. So I think it's not the normal route that other cities would have taken, but I think we gain a lot from the mobile experience and it makes it stronger to have a more sustainable sort of solution that we'll be bringing in uh, in the next 12 months. Cargo bikes as well? Yes. Um, I mean, it's part of, of the whole micromobility. So what we're currently doing is uh, we, we have a European project called eHubs. Uh, so, um, so we're going to uh, develop a series of eHubs around uh, the city to encourage multimodality and interchange. And as part of those e-hubs, there'll be uh, elements of cargo bikes in addition to e-bikes. And we're going to try to set up a, a community model. So it's not sort of the cargo bikes for businesses, but cargo bikes for communities, for people that want to go to the shop, don't want to drive, but don't know how to bring things back. So make it, uh, and if it's electric, then there's less sort of physical um, 
sort of uh, uh, they, they don't need that physical strength to, to be able to cycle. So the e-cargo bikes will be part of those e-hams. And y y so uh, who will operate this system? This will be? It will be through TFGM. It'll the be your system? Yeah. So we'll build the e-hams, we'll set up in addition to electric car clubs and, uh, and uh, e-bikes, we'll set up a series of cargo bikes for the community. Scooters? What other forms of micro-mobility are you looking at? Um, as you probably know, it's illegal in the UK. Mm. Uh, there's some cities in Europe that uh, have experienced uh, the, the influx of, of, of e-scooters. Uh, Madrid, after stopping everything, came out with a really good sort of way of allowing them to operate. Brussels has a really good sort of uh, idea of how to operate them and put up some sort of semi-regulatory environment for these scooters. So we, we're learning from that. Um, we're keen to have micromobility scooters, but it has to be well-planned, well-managed. We have the Mawike experience. We don't want to create uh, a big mess there. We're very keen, again, as part of our plans, is to make the urban space more uh, social more for, for people, for pedestrians, uh, and e-scooters can sometimes sort of uh, conflict with, with pedestrians and, 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 and the environment that you create. So we just submitted a, a bid, a future mobility bid to the DFT. Uh, and as part of that, if we're successful, we'll work with the government to set up sort of uh, regulatory sandboxes where we can trial things, see how it works in certain areas, geocode them properly uh, before we sort of open it to, to a bigger market. So it's it's in our sight, it's something we want to do. Um, uh, but we need to learn. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've seen them in Paris. Mm. They say there's around 70,000 e-scooters. Uh, it's, it's a figure that I got from Paris, I don't know if if that's the case, but it's a huge number. And if you go to La Bastille, they're on the road competing with buses, with cars, in, in that big runabout that has like seven arms. And you just think some, something is going to go wrong. We need to sort of manage that better than just allow all these things to come in. But the people who own these scooter companies are now companies like Uber, yeah. who have big checkbooks and can lobby to get rules changed. Whereas bicycles, even though they've been around for a long time, don't tend to have the same lobbying capacity, even though Uber owns Jump and Jump. stuff. But the scooters does tend to be, it looks as though they're, they're going hard to get the regulations changed in the UK to, to bring them in. Yeah, I think so. But and that's why I mean I do think that, that there's a place for e-scooters. Um, I when I ride them, they're good fun. They're very easy to ride. They they're very convenient as well. So as an individual, I enjoyed it. As a city planner, as a transport strategist, I can see the big problems that it can create if they're not well regulated. 
And I think we need to find a, a middle way in, in, in to make su making sure that it works for the cities and it provides a, a, a sort of last mile sort of solution or, or something. It's, it's challenging, uh, but I, I, I think that they will happen anyway. So we might as well start thinking before it happens to make sure that we uh, get the best out of uh, uh, something that is quite attractive for a lot of people. And what about congestion charging for Manchester? They tried it uh, uh, before, uh, it wasn't popular. Uh, but these things are never popular. You can't do these things to make you know, friends. Yeah, I, I think in a way with the, uh, the pollution problem, sort of the agenda has changed, or the way of dealing with congestion has changed as well. So we're introducing cleaner zones, uh, which uh, is not a congestion charging, but it does limit the sort of vehicles that can come in. Uh, we're also introducing more sort of shared mobility solutions to give better options to people. Uh, so it's, it's part of the whole sort of uh, uh, toolbox that, that that we want to apply. Um, I I I don't think uh, congestion char charging is pop is a popular thing. It's um, but in Stockholm, the, the reason they're expanding, they're, they're adding 70 new metro stations and they've got an amazing yeah, network yeah. already, is all from that 2006 congestion charge they brought yeah. in. And of course it wasn't popular, but yeah, yeah. people have now just got used to it, are paying it, and they're paying huge amounts of money, yeah. and they're able to then build out the infrastructure. Yeah. So you could build out bike infrastructure, uh, tram, you could build out an awful lot more if there was congestion charging, and of course we know it's unpopular. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, um, I don't think Manchester and, and certainly big cities in, in the UK uh, are still are ready for that yet. I think it needs to bring everyone together. It, it can be quite divisive and, 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 and quite a hard decision for politicians to make. Uh, so I, I don't think it's in Ma Manchester's agenda at the moment. So you think uh, a metro mayor would get voted out if, uh, if that metro mayor said we're going to bring in congestion pricing? Uh, I think there's other things that they can do uh, uh, before you go to that. But you can see in Nottingham how the parking levy has worked really well. Uh, partly because the boundary of the city is very small and people that work in Nottingham don't live or vote in Nottingham either. So it gives more freedom to, to those cities to take uh, bold steps. Bold steps. Um, cities like Birmingham, which uh, has the boundaries of, of Birmingham, are, is like four UK cities of the size of, of Nottingham. Uh, people live and work within those areas, so it makes decisions very difficult. So I wouldn't, be, wouldn't like to be in the shoes of, uh, of, of the decision makers on that because um, it's bringing pe people together. And I think that's why you really need to work with businesses. Uh, sort of, it's a process of of learning for everyone, see that there's other alternatives. 
get the the kids with asthma to show that actually th th there's there's real suffering there there's uh, make it more real so uh, ultimately is for for the politicians to take those decisions as a transport planner have you seen or do you think that the whole concept of metro mayors for transport has been transformational in the cities where it's it's obviously happened definitely definitely they have not only because contrary to the the london mayor which has uh, uh, infinite powers <laughs> the the outside london the 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 mayor sort of system is is uh, they have less powers but where they do have powers is on on, on transport uh, so for us, our mayor has taken transport as one of its key sort of uh, tools to really improve uh, the, the city, the region, is doing great initiatives in terms of the, the youth pass that we just introduced uh, to um, give people 16 to 21, uh, uh, I need to check that. The, the range, but uh, a free pass that allows them to attend further education or work. Uh, that's a bold step because it, 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 it's, it's something that will definitely uh, help youth. Um, we have secured significant money for, for cycling, 180 million pounds again, that uh, in the past, I don't think uh, without a mayor that wanted to do that would have happened. So, so I think transport is a supporting tool for prosperity and for a good quality of life. Uh, it's not an end on itself in a way that sometimes sort of the, the technical people sort of and transport planners sort of thing is uh, transport is transport. We're actually supporting the, the region to, to improve the life of people and that's what transport fits. And if you have a mayor that uses transport as for that effect, then it becomes very powerful. And I think both the, the Birmingham, the Westmoreland mayor, the Liverpool one, Merseyside, and, and ours to have quite a good sort of transport head, which uh, helps us, uh, it's a new experience for transport authorities because uh, we have uh, someone uh, more involved working with us, which is uh, excellent. Will you be measuring the use of the new cycleways that you're putting in to see, right, X number of cyclists are using the Oxford Road corridor, for yeah. instance. We need to extend that network around the corner, in effect. I is that something that you're looking at doing? It's like looking at actually how people are using this and then expanding the network if there are places where you're getting masses of, of, of use. And conversely, if you don't have masses of use, do you think, well, let's convert that to a tram line? What, what what's your thinking on, on cycleways? Um, I mean, we, as part of our IoT project, the, the, the City Bird project, it was a 20 million pound project. We, uh, through IoT, gain a lot of insight into, into cycling and through C-Sense and Mobike. And we've been mapping that 
we're introducing more sensors that help us sort of understand movements. Uh, I think it's a developmental, it's, it's part of the development, not only of the, the infrastructure, but also how we're going to manage that data and how we sort of support that through, through IoT uh, solutions. We need to look at more uh, how we're going to manage the curbside more dynamically as well. So I think at the moment we're sort of in a breaking new ground with a lot of this stuff and we're making very bold steps in terms of cycling as well. Um, not only we need to deliver the infrastructure but also complement it with, with uh, uh, other ways of monitoring and measuring. Uh, I think we we we're starting uh, at the moment. The 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 the, the, the infrastructure is, is still in in a planning stage, so we need to start making sure that uh, we use what we learned from the past two years to to gather good data on it. Thanks to Rafael Casta there. That's it for today's show. Show notes and more can be found on the spokesmancom Thanks for listening to today's show from Stockholm. The second part of this public transport special will be out in a day or two. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.